from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, an SEC insider on what the new climate disclosure rule will mean. Can software ease companies' ESG pain? The new rules of engagement on climate lobbying and why some corporate tree planting initiatives are out on a limb. We're getting back to our roots this week on 350. It's March 25th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, springing into action, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. How are you? How, how's your week been? <laughs> it's been good. It's been busy. It's been, uh, uh, yeah, good and busy. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, could you be a little more specific? I actually haven't haven't looked at your calendar. I haven't, yeah. I haven't been a sneaky. Yeah. But what what was uh what was so busy about well, it? Well, uh, you know, as we come out of this uh, tunnel that we've all been cave that we've all been living in, the, uh, I, this, my speaking schedule has been ramping up quite nicely, and so a couple of this week, uh, I gave the closing keynote to the International Fresh Produce Association Executive Leadership Summit. Um, uh, executives from you know growers, packers, shippers, uh, processors, the whole, if, if you pardon the expression, food chain on produce. And uh, that was just really interesting. It, it, in the same way that uh, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to the Pallet Association. I, I love diving into these uh, industries for at least a minute and hearing some of their, uh, I mean, you know, nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Uh, no, it's just not my thing. But learning, you know, about pallets, as I shared with the audience, I guess last week, and and uh, and and just sort of some of the issues in sustainability and produce, and and then sharing with them my issues. So it was at an uh, conference on ESG for in the real estate industry up up in Sonoma County, uh, and uh, again looking at uh, some of the biggest investors and landlords and building op- owner operators of of. Uh, Commercial buildings in in North America, just again, a whole different take than let's say fresh produce on on sustainability. This I love that I love being able to bounce from topic to topic and sort of figure out what's a sustainability angle. So I know you love that too. That's a part why you became a journalist in this topic, as did I. Uh, so that was that was that was what was fun this week for me. Yeah, that's one of the things that I yeah I do share with you. I I'm always curious. And I think, well, that's why we're journalists. You know, I, I, I do find that mine is, is often comes back to my roots in technology and how technology, information technology specifically can be a, an aid in many of these, uh, you know, movements that we've, that we've talked about. And I, I, you know, prior to this sustainability stuff, I was looking a lot about at, at education and training and so forth anyway. So yeah, I won't go down that path, but mm. <laughs> Yeah. No, but we're going to go down that path in a few minutes with a story you did that that relates to the big story this week, of course, in our world, which was the uh, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission uh, issued their uh, 
proposals uh, for uh, climate disclosure by publicly traded companies. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit later in this episode from uh, Grant Harrison, our uh, ESG and Sustainable Finance uh, senior analyst, about some of the conversations he's had around that and, and what the significance really is. Uh, but yeah, it's we've been waiting for this moment for a long, long time. And uh, SEC has finally put something out there, and uh, it'll be interesting to see in this comment period. And a lot of people uh, are for it, and a certain number of people are against it, and exactly where the SEC is going to land. Yeah. And even the ones that are not necessarily against it are leery of the cost of it, right? The compliance thing, that's come up a lot. And that doesn't mean the companies aren't you know, sort of reluctantly in favor of it, but they are facing some serious operational and organizational challenges in order to deliver on on those disclosures. Yeah, that goes to my uh, quip that uh, when it comes to change, we all love the noun and hate the verb, which is to say we like the idea of change, but actually changing, uh, not so much. And so, you know, there are companies and and obviously investors, but even some very big companies uh, who say, yes, we need these to create the level playing field and to comport with some of the some of the other similar kinds of, of disclosure requirements taking place around the world. Um, and yet actually doing it, they, you know, well, I'm sure they will be more than a little bitching and moaning about uh, the onerous uh, requirements of this, assuming it all goes through. So yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And uh, yeah, that's going to be, I'm sure, you know, topic, uh, you know, if not topic one, it'll be in the top three topics at at our Greenfin conference in June, at the end of June in New York. And so uh, this is not going to be a, a short-lived conversation whatsoever. But, you know, getting ahead of ourselves here. So let's uh, dip back into the Week in Review. So your story, as I mentioned earlier, Heather, uh, we'll start with that. A, a, a different take. I wouldn't have seen that coming on the SEC disclosure proposal. And, and you, you wrote a piece on on what that disclosure is going to mean for ESG software. Uh, do tell. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, as I teed up in our chit chat there, uh, two things. One is that I am always geeking out about how information technology and digitization, if you will, um, can really accelerate climate action, as well as I also alluded to the fact that how do you comply with this new disclosure rule, Um, you know, this proposed new disclosure rule. And both of those elements are part of this story, which is that, which is to say that there's this whole crop of software out there right now. Um, One of my predictions, which has come true already in the first quarter, was that, uh, 2022 would be like the year of carbon software. And by that, I mean all of these carbon accounting systems that are coming into play, all of these climate risk intelligence services that help companies figure out where they can site a facility, whether the the, the flood plan in that area will be against them or for them in the future how their transition plan might play out from a you know you know if they move if they're in certain industries how how moving for example in the automotive industry from internal combustion engine products to EVs could impact your revenue plan how long it might take you know what what are the risks um 
There's all sorts of software systems, um, and not to mention, of course, the big one, supply chain, right? Mm. So the, the enterprise software category is something I've been following a very long time. And there's just this convergence of activity on that, on those particular um, areas. Those are just three of the areas that I'm really watching closely. So lots of startups there. And at the same time, we have many of the largest of the large, uh, including Microsoft, uh, you know, Salesforce, SAP, really circling um, this space and trying to understand better how their systems for enterprise resource planning can now encompass these, these elements of carbon footprinting and accounting for the action you've taken, how, how this reduction uh, project might have affected your operational um, footprint for carbon. There's just so much that needs to be done and it just can't be done manually. And as we've talked about many times here before, there hasn't really been a lot of investment in a very um, disciplined way in this area before. So I, there's just this big, massive convergence um, that I think we'll, we'll, we'll see two things happening. One is that, that chief sustainability officers really should be talking to their, um, their CIOs, their chief information officers, and understanding how this all fits um, in. And P.S., the CIOs should be like, knocking on the door, actually, probably. <laughs> there's probably a line in some companies right now. Um, you know, But there's just this sort of rationalization that needs to happen of the systems, of the information systems of companies. And then on the other side of things, um, we're already seeing like, and you've called this quite a bit, uh, a lot of merger and acquisition activity on the intelligence services. So and the people doing ratings and, um, and, and providing information about the ESG standing of different companies, there's a ton of consolidation happening there. I also think there's going to be a ton of consolidation with within the startup space. So the the software companies that are working on counting a carbon systems, they're going to start merging and also probably being snapped up by the the likes of again Microsoft, uh, Salesforce, and SAP. And there's others. I mean, I haven't frankly, I don't even really know what Oracle's doing in this space right now, but that's probably a company that I should be looking at more closely. Um, you know, but it's just like mind boggling. There is, I could probably interview, uh, you know, someone every hour <laughs> of the day and still not talk to as many people that are in this space right now. It's just, it's really exciting. Yeah. Yep. No, this is uh, uh, it's really interesting to watch this. And some of these companies, uh, Persephone, for example, seems to be by virtue of its hires and the money they've raised. They just raised one hundred million dollars last year, I think, uh, or this earlier. Yeah, last year. They um, uh, and the people they've been hiring, they, they seem to be making a big play. But there's a lot of other players as well. And, and you know, I assume at some point it's first of all, it's going to boil down to you know, three players, much as in the in the ESG ratings, you've got uh, S&P, Sustainalytics, and MSCI, even though there's a bunch of others. Um, and it's got to roll up, uh, you know, soon, you know, to your point, and it's all going to eventually be owned by Deloitte or mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos or somebody. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> he hasn't really managed to make a big impact in the enterprise software category, other than in cl- cloud so- software services. There is actually one other thing I'd like to mention, um, you know, because you, you brought up Persephone and one of the things that they're doing, I mean, they, they're probably, I think the big, the most well-funded of the startups in that space, they had like a hundred 
and $1 million Series B round last November. But one of the things I love that they're doing is they've created what used to be called like a freemium. It's a version of the software for smaller companies, right? So that's also the big thing about this rule is that this there's the scope three stuff, the scope three implications of this disclosure rule are really interesting. I hadn't really thought about like how they were going to include that. And um I'll bet that the final rule doesn't have isn't isn't as strong as the current one is, but they're definitely suggesting that companies, uh, if it's material, get ha- be reporting on their scope three emissions, and that means all sorts of investments for for that kind of a, of, a, of a platform, like where you have to have your smaller suppliers getting on board, as well as in supply chain software, where maybe some of the larger companies could help gather that information in a some kind of automated way. So yeah, compl- amazing stuff happening yeah. in the space. And and all of this data that's being collected by all these software programs are really a precursor to transparency, which is a precursor to storytelling. And that brings us to uh, another piece that we want to feature this week that's very near and dear to me by our good friend, Mike Hauer, who's the head of climate engagement over at Think Parallax. Uh, on tapping the power of effective ESG storytelling, and boy, he uh, talks about this right out of right out of uh, things I've been talking about. It, it, I mean, just in in the sense of we're very much aligned here, which is that um, st- the sto- state of the art of storytelling in in sustainability and ESG is really not very good. I was going to use some slightly stronger language, but 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 uh, it leaves a lot to be desired, let's just say. And and you know this, Heather, because you and I are the uh, are the consumers of of massive amounts of press pitches and press releases and 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 other things where companies are looking, you know, to tell their story through us or hoping we'll tell their story for them. And the state of the art of that just blows my mind about, you know, that we I, we still get press pitches that say it turns out it is easy being green or you can save the earth and make money too it's like wow that's so like 1994 um and 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 they're just not evolving in the way and so uh this piece come is based on the panel that Mike uh Howard led at at, at our Greenbiz 22 conference last month uh with Sonia Norman uh, who's the uh, vice President of ESG Strategy and Impact at Salesforce, and Sasha Calder, who heads sustainability at, at Genomatica, and Roma, uh, Roma McCaig, the Senior VP of Impact and Communication at Cliff Bar and Company. Uh, yeah, I think you know, the, the topic of this and, and the takeaways um, that, you know, guess what? People don't really want to know the jargon or the technical, technical specifics. Uh, uh, of something, they just want the more of an emotional response, and to know that the company cares in a genuine way about whatever the ESG issue is that's being communicated, um, and whether you're talking to consumers, uh, whether those are individual households or B two B customers, or whether you're talking to uh, your employees or, or pretty much uh, uh, any audiences. Uh, so, yeah, it, it it's a great summary of of what needs to happen. But boy, uh, this should have been written on February 2nd because it sure does feel like Groundhog Day. 
<laughs> well, I was just gonna refer to another day that I'm sure you've already seen in your inbox, which is Earth Day. I just, the, the pitches have already started coming and I've just, uh, I just, uh, yeah. As you have said many times, yeah, pretty much here at Greenbus, every day is Earth Day. So like, don't, that's not gonna get my attention. Um, but but you already mentioned one of the, the takeaways that I really um, appreciated, which is the, the sort of jargon. Um, it doesn't have to be full of jargon and it shouldn't be full of jargon. It should be appealing to a human. You know, we're all humans. It should be appealing to the human audience, you know, human side of the audience. Um, I also really appreciate the fact that, you know, this is a, um, it's a journey, right? So no company is perfect. No message is perfect. No message is ever done. It has to evolve and it should be like, it should definitely be something that, that follows the vibe of your company. I mean, if done right, this is not just about, this is about your, your corporate strategy. And it happens to have all of these elements of the ESG strategy embedded into it. Now, and to me, that like that that's maybe the way that people should be thinking about moving. Now, I know we have people have to do reports for the frameworks, and that's part of it. And those are you know sort of the the single source of truth. I think as uh, uh, um, Davida Davida called it, which I really appreciate it. But you know, it, it's it's not just. Um, <sighs> It's really, I, I, I think that's the, the mistake that a lot of companies make as well, is that they kind of, it's like, here's our ESG messaging team and here's our messaging team. Well, um, no, <laughs> right? It should really be this this corporate um, message that, that, again, underscores yeah. where the company is in that. And, in and, that, and in also, that and, and Davida Heller was the, the, the third member of the panel. Um, I, I misspoke earlier. Uh, and, and as she commented in this story that, uh, sure, you have an overarching message and a unified message, but you also have to break it up into, in, in, into, into bite-sized pieces because, you know, as you well know, the ESG field is 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 massive in terms of the number uh, and types of of issues that are that are on the table because you've got uh, you know toxic materials and carbon offsets and carbon accounting and traceability and scope three emissions and science-based targets and then you go that's just the you know and many many others on the environmental side and then on the social side you've got labor issues and worker health and safety and social justice and human rights and dei direct diversity issues. And then on the governance side, you've got climate competent boards and executive pay. Anyway, it's so complicated that nobody should have to understand all that, including the, you know, the people inside companies who are responsible for a lot of these things. There's no way you can get it all. And so to, to make some overarching commitment is just either warm and fuzzy or just is going to miss the mark in some way, shape or form. And that's why I think this, this I love the bite size piece and, and, how do you turn it? How do you turn data and facts into compelling stories? So, I'll take us to our last story this week, which is your story from uh, the newsletter, and it's one that I've it's I it really resonated with me because I've said the same thing before and actually managed to make some people not happy with me. Um, but you wrote about why some corporate tree planting initi initiatives are out on a limb and. Um, he, it was prompted by the International Day of Forests, which, uh, you know, we also had World Water Day this week, but I, I guess that kind of, I mean, that that was the, the moment in time that, that you chose to uh, talk about this. But um, I love 
I love your thinking here. Um, I think that my favorite line, uh, which I'm sure you've probably gotten feedback on, but to my knowledge, there's no anti-tree planting lobby, but, <laughs> but, but you are super, you, you, you make so many points in this story that I completely agree with. Um, I just want to, I'm just curious, like, what was the catalyst for this one? Was it, was it that day that was coming up or was there something that you saw that you really kind of wanted to call people out on? Um, Cause this is kind of a sassy column. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, well, you know, you know this well, Heather, that there are these story ideas that are sort of bubbling in the background or things like someday I got to write about that or that's interesting, but I'll never get to it. And then all of a sudden there'll be some precipitating factor or as we call it in journalism, a hook and the hook on which to hang this story for me was uh, International Day of Forest. And by the way, on Monday, uh, March 21st, was not just International Day of Forest. It was International uh, uh, Day of Wood or something like that. It was, uh, uh, it, I don't, I couldn't tell it. I went to the website for this uh, Wood in International Day and to try to see if this was uh, sort of, was this playing the, you know, the counter message that says that, uh, all right, forests are forests. We need to keep them standing, but we also need wood. And so, uh, but, or was this was this sort of uh, complementary or competitive? I couldn't figure it out. It's, it seems to be a bunch of academics, so I, I assume it's more complementary than 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 a bunch of. I was I was sort of looking. Is this an industry? You know what what they often call a a astroturf group, a, a group uh, trying to look like a, a grassroots organization that that is fake. Uh, but, but yeah, so, you know, tree planting and, and there's no, no anti-tree planting lobby. It, be, it makes the point that this is sort of a universally loved strategy, plant trees. We need them to, to absorb carbon dioxide uh, to mitigate to the climate crisis. And, you know, it, it's, it's really the, the best negative emissions technology that we have right now, at least uh, at scale. And there are a number of, of million tree initiatives, a uh, million that are taking place um, and around the world right now. And yet, and there's always an and yet, uh, you know, you can't just plant trees and assume that A, they're going to, they're the right trees, B, that they're going to uh, be nurtured and, and actually grow and see that they're not going to be cut down or burned down or, or infested. Um, yeah, or you know, or that you're planting the right trees in the wrong places. Uh, so these are issues that are certainly not new. But as as multinationals, everyone from Amazon to Zurich Insurance uh, are making these commitments. I thought it was just an important time to take a look and say, not so fast. Uh, just you don't just plant trees. You got to do it right, and you got to do it for the long term. Which means you don't just stick them in the ground and walk away and 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 raise your arms and high five. Uh, you got to uh, make sure these things actually grow to do their to do the work. Uh, there was a, a notorious case in Turkey that actually set a Guinness World Record for planting more than three hundred thousand saplings in a single hour. Um, uh, amazing feat! Uh, but less than three months later, over up to ninety percent of, of these eleven million saplings they planted were were dead. Um, they were planted at the wrong time. There was insufficient rainfall to support them, probably insufficient uh, sort of nurturing on the part of the humans that planted them in the first place. And now we have drones doing this work. I didn't really get into that in the piece, but there's drones that are trying to, uh, are those drones coming back and making sure those trees are actually uh, surviving and thriving? So these are some of the questions I wanted to ask 
And the last thing is that there was a working paper from a group called uh, World Agroforestry, an international institute that's headquartered in Kenya. And they outlined some of the challenges uh, with tree planting programs that you know, the planting cycle is often too short and, and, and one to three years where the trees really require at least five years to become stable. And, uh, you know, this, there's a gap between what's done and what communities often need that people want to plant, uh, uh, grow trees that may not necessarily match the interests of local farmers who want fruit trees, for example, or forage species or, or things that can create timber. And so the farmers are reluctant. Anyway, these are all challenges that if you stand on your head and look at them, they actually become uh, solutions. Uh, become a roadmap of how to ensure a program success. So yeah, uh, this was uh, just an interesting topic and, uh, and lots more to say on this that I didn't even get into. But uh, yeah, any, any big takeaways from you on this, Heather? Well, actually, just to respond to one thing um, that you mentioned, some of the, yes, the answer is on the drone, on the drone situation. Um, yes, some of those, uh, those technologies are actually, that's, that's one of the the benefits that they're touting that they can actually go back and keep an eye on those those saplings and make sure that they grow and help figure out when there does need to be water and should there be some culling you know some thinning out of the of the plants that are growing and all that stuff so yeah the the answer is yeah and i think dendra systems is one of the ones that's gotten pretty good visibility there are others i am spacing out and not remembering all their names right now but to answer that question, the th I think the thing for me that th there's two things that I've always been kind of wondering about in this area. One is that long-term commitment thing, which is like, okay, we had our tree planting thing. We can check that off. And then like sort of the, the lack of follow-up um, on the corporate initiatives, I think is is definitely something that deserves attention. Um, and I there's probably a lot of good examples of companies that are following up. And I, I think we'd love to hear about them because I think that that deserves some coverage, right? Over time, like what happened? Did it result in the kind of, of benefits that you had hoped? What did you have to do? Are, are you changing your strategy? I think that's always the information that we love as a journalism organization to hear about, you know, like this, it's not, the story isn't done, you know, when the, the tree is planted in that case. Um, but the other thing that the, the that I've been also wondering about is like what you're planning, right? You can't just go out and plant the the monoculture because that that tree is the tree indigenous. Is the tree planted in con context with other plants that will help that whole ecosystem survive? And that's not always a focus of of these efforts as well. And um, and that came out in the story, like in your thoughts as well. That something that that I always wonder about is, are you planning the right things? Is it in the right place? Are you following up? And is it the right time? Because you can't plan all year long. So as usual, timing is everything. Several leading investor groups and financial organizations recently published a new global standard on responsible climate lobbying. The framework was developed by AP7, BNP Paribus Asset Management, and the Church of England Pensions Board, along with Kronos Sustainability, Influence Map, and the London School of Economics. The intent is to encourage corporations to align their lobbying activities with the goal of the Paris Agreement to hold global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius and to discourage lobbying that blocks climate action. Joining me to chat about the new framework and how it could affect the future of investor engagement 
are Claire Richards, Senior Engagement Manager at Church of England Pensions Board, and Morgan Lamana, Director of Investor Engagements at Ceres. Welcome, ladies. Great to have you. Hey, here. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Claire, my first question is for you. Why is this framework, this standard, whatever you want to call it, necessary? Really why, why we instigated this was as a means of kind of focusing minds and aligning actions. And that's really on both the, the kind of corporate and the investor side of things. Um, because over the past number of years, responsible investors, ourselves included, have been you know, busy and active um, engaging with companies on corporate climate lobbying. Um, and very often the question that comes back is, well, what does good look like? You know, what do you expect us to be doing? And there's, there's been various expectations that have evolved um, over the years. And this was really a process of consolidating those and building on the best parts and strengthening that and adding an extra layer of clarity, really, and um, the set alignment in terms of saying, you know, corporate climate lobbying, corporate lobbying full stop, is a legitimate activity. But it has to be aligned with, as you said at the start, with the goal of the Paris Agreement and the temperature goal um, in order to be focused on managing um, a just and sustainable transition that actually is in the interest of investors, the companies and the societies that they operate in. Basically, when it comes down to it, it's, it, it's a matter of good governance. And as investors, it's been quite concerning that companies have been so slow to kind of identify this as actually being a strategic risk and also an opportunity for them to make sure that the transition targets that they're setting for themselves, that they're actually acting across the company to make sure that all of their efforts are focused on creating the the right policy environment for those transition targets to actually be, be met, be hit. So, and, and Ceres is one of the number of organizations that has popped in to support this framework right away. Um, Morgan, why was it important for, for your organization to be there at the beginning uh, and, and to, to really broadcast its support for this framework? Yeah, great. Well, Ceres um, has an investor network uh, that works with some of the largest uh, global asset managers in the world. Um, and we also have a corporate network, which represents companies um, really in all sectors that are um, you know, major parts of, of the U.S. economy, major employers, and uh, investors and companies both know that uh, to meet their own climate goals um, and to meet their own um, commitments to uh, net zero by 2050, for example, which uh, many major investors have already set, um, realize that there needs to be a, a stable policy framework, um, you know, globally, as, as the Paris Agreement is set out, uh, and, and especially in the U.S., um, you know, as a major emitter. So Ceres engages with federal policymakers as well as state policymakers uh, to try and, um, you know, ensure that there is a stable policy framework, um, you know, specifically if it's been working on the, the Build Back Better um, regulation recently um, and also the SEC rule on mandatory climate disclosure, which has just come out today. Uh, and we know from that process that uh, regulators really like to hear from investors. They really want to hear from 
investors as universal owners, um, you know, that they, they do believe there's an economic imperative for um, Paris Alliance climate policy. Um, so investors, um, you know, they're, they're speaking out in support of these kind of policies, um, but they need the companies that they, that they own to um, really give a consistent message. Uh, and so that's why the, the disclosure is so important, as Claire was saying, to see how companies are governing this, these issues, um, you know, how they're disclosing, and what action they are taking. Um, and I also wear another hat, which is working on the Climate Action 100 Plus Initiative, uh, where investors are engaging the, the 167 largest carbon emitters globally. And our new benchmark will come out uh, next week, benchmarking companies. But as of the last year's benchmark, you know, over 111 of the 167 focus companies already had net zero commitments. And if you really add all these commitments together, they would remove about 20% of global annual emissions uh, from the atmosphere. Um, and so it's really important that companies are, are taking action, you know, which is another key part of, of this framework, um, that they're actually taking action to lobby for policies that would help them meet uh, those commitments. And this, I love the framework. It's got, I, I was looking at it before we chatted. It's 14 different elements, really specific things. Claire, can you dig into the details a little bit for us? Um, share some of the things that companies can expect to do. Um, what, what's expected and, and is there a place where you think people are going to start first? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a roadmap for what better and best practice looks like. Um, and it's definitely not a case um, I mean, as with any engagement that we do, we're not expecting any company to be absolutely perfect and be scoring, you know, um, across the board on, on all of this straight away. But definitely, um, we as responsible investors expect that companies are committed to heading in that direction and that they're going to do that at pace, you know, in line with the, the scale of the challenge that we face. So. I mean, within within the the fourteen indicators, you know, there's a there's a rationale, like kind of explaining um, like what that looks like. But it there are kind of it's split into four areas, just very briefly. So policy and commitment, government action, and specific disclosures. And as I said, it that builds on on what's gone before. So there's nothing in there. I don't think that will you know. It's like, yeah, it hasn't just been <laughs> created out of nowhere. It, it's been drawn from um, you know, like from what thinking, you know, shared thinking is from within the investor community, from the corporate world, from policymakers, from civil society as to what should be happening and what what would be beneficial for companies to be doing. Um, so I think you know one of the one of the key obvious uh, baseline kind of indicators is that a company should have a public commitment to align all of its. Uh, climate change lobbying with that temperature goal and the the alignment of lobbying with the Paris um, Agreement was something that we put out as part of the public consultation. There were two consultations and there was majority support for that across a range of stakeholders that responded to that consultation that climate lobbying has to be, should be aligned with the Paris Agreement. So I think that's something that sets this standard apart, but it's been very clear in saying that there's it needs to be aiming for that aspirational goal of minimizing, you know, to uh, 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So that's a key aspect. And I think one that we constantly come up against is the fact that this should apply to 
all business areas and all operational jurisdictions. So, you know, not cherry picking just in particular markets where maybe companies might think there's maybe a bit more civil society attention or there's a bit more stakeholder pressure to be aligned. And then that they, they do that in one area, but they kind of don't pay quite so much attention to what some of the, um, say, the further flung uh, arms of their business might be doing in, in other areas. Um, so that there has to be that consistency. And you know, speaking of consistency, that companies should act on misalignment and act in a really timely way where they do detect that you know, rather than wait um, until they're reporting on it in other years' time. And I think just to, to finish off with a fourth point, but for the company to publicly disclose their assessment of actually the difference that they see, the impact that they think their lobbying is making. You know, why are they doing this? What difference they think it's making in the real world? in terms of both supporting ambitious climate change policy, but also how it's supporting the company's own ability to deliver on its corporate transition strategy. Because that's always the kind of, the, the odds the kind of disjoint between companies and of what they say they're doing and what they actually are doing. Because it's like, as Morgan said, all of these companies have set net zero transition uh, targets but then how are they pulling the weight of their company and deploying all of those impressive marketing and behavior change resources that they have at their disposal to actually influencing that change to make those policies and that public kind of sentiment a reality? So I think that that impact statement is one of the really key areas that we'll be looking for companies to deliver on in the kind of months and, and years ahead and to do that on an annual basis as well because it's like why are you spending these dollars or these pounds whatever you know euro on this uh lobbying if you're at not actually measuring what the impact of it is you wouldn't do that in any other area of your business so you know let's step up and kind of look at it on that basis mm-hmm well, and, and thank you for that overview. I, when I was studying the list, I, one of the things that leapt out at me was the, um, the focus that your framework puts on how companies um, handle their relationships with trade organizations and industry associations. We know that a number of those associations have, may have been at, at odds with climate lobbying, the most controversial one of, of which here in the United States, at least, is the U.S. Chamber why is that whole focus on who you're aligned with from an industry organization or trade organization standpoint? Why is that so important to address? Yeah, there's a, oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, missing the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, this organization that provides a lot of uh, data on lobbying to investors called Influence Map. Um, and they found that uh, the two most powerful trade associations advocating for the deregulation uh, on climate. Um, is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers um, both lobbied successfully uh, for the United States to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Um, so I think we've seen, you know, some companies step out. You know, Apple and PG&E left the Chamber of Commerce in 2009, stating, you know, climate policy um, differences. But you know, really, it's, it, there needs to be more companies, more of these companies that have net zero targets, you know, actively engaging um, the chamber from the inside. We've seen UPS has done in making statements, um, you know, about climate policy. So, you know, this this framework, I think, can show how, how companies are governing that misalignment. Um, and it really creates a framework and a pathway for them to, to take action, disclose, 
um, and creates that transparency where investors can can clearly see where there's a misalignment and, and raise that to the top of the agenda when they're engaging companies. Mm-hmm. Claire, is there anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, and I think that, and also, you know, that creating, say, coalitions if they're willing, like, you know, partnering up with other companies, investors, other stakeholders to, to have a stronger collective voice um, in order to, you know, outshout the, the negative. Because I think, you know, the, the point of this, you know, the emphasis in this global standard is definitely on the responsible. There's the aspect of minimizing and stamping out, say, the harmful impact of misaligned lobbying, but there's also the maximizing the opportunity of the responsible lobbying and making sure that companies investors aren't kind of silent partners as the policy agenda kind of drifts away from attainment of um, the Paris policy. And indeed, once, once policies are put in place, that also companies can be champions of making sure that those are delivered in a way that is equitable, but, but it is at, delivered in a way that actually means that they are, they are as ambitious in practice as they were intended on paper, um, you know, rather than uh, leading to kind of a dilution or a delay of the delivery of them, which we, we see you know, very much today with uh, emissions, um, sale price emission standards. We keep seeing that here in, in Europe at the moment, that um, there's a lot of lobbying by companies uh, against a more stringent earlier uh, kind of ending of um, internal combustion engine sales. And actually, there are companies that their business model is very well set for an early transition away from, from that. So, you know, we're looking to them to be more vocal um, in order to make sure that policymakers have the confidence that business is kind of on their side, you know, and, and that their workforce of those companies as well is hearing that message that actually the transition can be in their benefit, that it's not something um, it, it's not something to resist and be afraid of, but actually in a managed way, it's something that is to the, the benefit of business and society. Morgan, you mentioned specific names before about, um, you know, people that pulled out of the chamber and other organizations that were at odds with with the, you know, their climate agenda. Um, and Claire, you mentioned before, no one's going to be perfect, but I, I want wondering if there's any um, companies out there today that really kind of are a shining example of maybe they're almost there or they're organizations that you feel are doing a great job that are worth emulating? You know, what's the landscape out there? Um, anyone worth 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 a copying or, you know, and what's the feedback been? Well, I think, you know, that over the past few years, we've gone from one company that had, had disclosed um, an assessment of, of their climate lobbying, of their trade associations, trade associations in particular, to there now being more than 40 globally. So I think, you know, there are companies that are stepping up on the disclosure side of it. And certainly, you know, there are ones that, that I've engaged with over the past year that genuinely seem to be grasping this. And, you know, when the penny drops, they're kind of like, oh, hang on. Yes. No, this, we, we can see there's a benefit to this. There's a benefit for the company not just in terms of that reputational aspect, which is important because they're scored on this as part of the Climate Action 100 benchmark as well, apart from anything else, but that they see that, yeah, some of the, some of the relationships, the, the kind of association memberships that we have 
are maybe legacy relationships from how the business used to be rather than where we think we are now and certainly the direction that we intend to head in. And I think companies, um, I mean, there's, a, there's a Finnish um, uh, utility called Fortum and you know they did a really credible first um, disclosure this year. Shell has, you know, whilst areas of practice uh, remain open um, to debate, I think Shell has really grasped this positively and taken stakeholder feedback on board. And they've now done, I think it's three um, editions of their annual um, disclosure. And each time they've expanded the scope of it, so they've included more associations within uh, the methodology. And they've also been clearer on their own positions. And I think as those companies, and indeed the likes of Bayer, the German chemical company, you know, they're, they're putting out positive signals to other companies that this is increasingly an industry norm. You know, it's not a fringe activity. You've got companies like Toyota that have stepped up and done this within the past year. Just this last week, Mercedes-Benz, the German automaker, has announced in their annual chairman's letter that they are going to be publishing a disclosure this side of their AGM. Like, it's possible, um, and it's to the benefit of the company. So I think that the big question is not so much, you know, the, the companies now that have done it, but the question is why have the companies that haven't disclosed yet, that haven't made these policy commitments um, to align their lobbying, what's holding them back from, from doing that? Like, what are the policy positions that they think are necessary um, for them to hit their transition targets? And what are they actually doing about making those a reality? And I think increasingly those are going to be the questions that investors are going to be asking because it becomes more and more apparent that there isn't actually a good reason for a company not to do this other than the fact that, you know, they're, they're uncomfortable <laughs> with, with the, you know, what they might uncover. Mm-hmm. Morgan, any uh, organizations to add? Yeah, no, definitely. I think in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of shareholder engagement on Paris-aligned lobbying, shareholder proposals, and we've seen majority votes. So several you know, reports have been starting to come out by U.S. companies, these Paris-aligned lobbying trade association reports. There's not any of them that I would say are almost there, but they're a start. And I think framework um, you know, like this really helps to uh, create expectations for what's a good report. Um, one good example we like to point to is um, PepsiCo, um, you know, where they, they've made the commitment that their climate goals and policy advocacy efforts are consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement. They've asked trade associations to adopt a similar stance. You know, they annually report trade association memberships and how those lobby on climate policy. Um, and they also did a, a, a statement on their website stating that they didn't share the views of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on climate policy. Total Energies, well, they withdrew from API, the American Petroleum Institute, because of misalignment on on climate issues. And you know, I think that is a that's a really interesting example of a company escalating publicly when they don't feel that they can actually make the change that they feel is necessary while staying within. Um, I always kind of use the example that it's 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 similar to the kind of invest divest kind of argument within responsible investment. You know, it's like that. As a last resort, if you can't influence positively, then it becomes very difficult to continue making the case for why you remain a member or why you remain invested. So um, I think having all of those um, escalation tactics on the table for um, companies 
as well as for investors is, is really important. A couple quick thoughts from both of you to wrap us up here. We got this framework in place. What happens next? Uh, Morgan, let's start with you. Um, yeah, I'll say investors are, are lined up and ready for this information uh, to engage on this. So um, just kind of waiting for, for the data. And I would say call to action to companies, um, you know, speak out and support, um, you know, the climate provisions of the Build Back Better uh, legislation and, um, you know, really welcome the SEC rule on mandatory climate disclosure. Um, I saw a colleague of mine said, you know, there is data out there, but it's a hot mess. So it is really in the best interest of, of companies and, and investors to have uh, clear, consistent data, uh, which frameworks like this can can help provide. And Claire? Briefly, I mean, the companies, you know, prioritize this as an issue and, and make sure that you are aligning all of your climate lobbying with best practice and it is in the interest of the company's long-term interests as well as um, ours and, and wider societies. And then for investors, to make sure that the issue of corporate lobbying is being raised in every climate engagement um, because without that, there's, you know, that's just a massive missing piece of the jigsaw and we all need to be working on that and being vocal on that in order to, to make sure that we're really pulling our weight. You just heard from Claire Richards, Senior Engagement Manager at Church of England Pensions Board, and Morgan Lamana, Director of Investor Engagements at Ceres. As we said earlier this week, the Securities and Exchange Commission issued a proposal to require publicly traded companies to disclose their climate performance and risks. It's an effort, says the agency, to create a level playing field for investors as they begin to recognize that things like droughts, storms, and wildfires as are risk to the operations, supply chains, and employee well-being of the companies that they invest in. The proposal has long been waited, so it's kind of a big deal in the sustainability and ESG world. It's almost akin to Moses handing down the Ten Commandments to his people. But is this really a moment of biblical proportions? Joining me now is Green Biz Green Finance and ESG analyst Grant Harrison to talk about that. Hey, Grant. Hey, Joel. Good to be with you. So uh, you've been out there talking to, well, some of the disciples and acolytes of, uh, of SEG and ESG. Uh, what are they telling you about these uh, proposals? Yeah, it's been quite a uh, spiritual journey here, uh, collecting this information. It's has yeah the the key takeaway i think which is a big surprise to me uh is that and this is kind of what christina wyatt started sharing with me uh is that things went according to plan and that is not usually the prognosis for most actions or desired actions in the climate space so uh, i think that alone is its own kind of separate win from what the substance of this will create so Christina Wyatt is a former uh, SEC uh, staffer uh, who you interviewed uh, this week, uh, just as these uh, these came out on, I think, Monday. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and you ran a piece that uh, we ran the piece, a uh, long informed interview with her. Uh, what else did she have to say? Yeah, j just give the disciple her formal, formal title. She was uh, just last month left the SEC. She was senior counsel for climate at ESG to the director of the Division of Corporate Finance, and she now finds herself uh, with Persephone, the carbon accounting software startup, uh, as Deputy General Counsel and SVP for Global Regulatory Climate Disclosure. That's a lot of words for you there. Um, but yeah, we started off the conversation kind of starting with that thread I just mentioned that things went according to plan and kind of reflected on the 
the two or three years that preceded this that kind of uh, centered around Commissioner Allison Lee and her team and acolytes who were were keeping this conversation and movement alive during an administration that obviously was not totally on board with uh, how things are unfolding now. So lots of praise to the good people doing that work and still doing that work. One of the key things that came up in the conversation is one that is not necessarily new, but uh, the concept of materiality and what is considered material in this particular conversation around climate effects on companies. We oftentimes get into conversations around double materiality, where the conversation is effects of climate on the ability of X, Y, or Z company to perform and company X, Y, or Z's impacts on the climate. This is focusing on the first of those two. And it's kind of one of those, there's, there's a more complicated thread and a simpler one. And the more complicated one, uh, she pointed me back to a, a piece that Commissioner Allison Lee had published, really good opinion on materiality that maybe we'll put in the show notes here for those who want to do uh, extra credit homework. But she was making a very lucid point that uh, to the detractors that say climate is not material for all companies across the spread, therefore it should not be something that's universally mandated. And she points to the fact that there are already existing SEC reports that every company has to uh, disclose on even if the variance of materiality is a really wide kind of spread between those. And, and so not every line item always applies to every company in the same weight or the same import as it does for others. So this is not necessarily a new concept for those that would say, well, this isn't universally material, even though it, it is, it's, it's of course very different. If pick your favorite asset manager tomorrow ceased to exist and their buildings no longer operated, they didn't fly, they didn't charge their laptops, it probably wouldn't have a hugely material impact on the climate. Of course, their finance emissions and those that are in their portfolios would. So it's there is a spectrum, uh, but it kind of puts that argument against whether this is material to rest a bit. And honestly, just a more simple definition, and this is something Matt Levine, the writer of the, the Money Stuff uh, newsletter for, for Bloomberg was talking about, is it's a quite simple equation. If investors care about a thing, then that thing is material and companies should disclose it. And if you have 100 and I think it was a, a number quoted by Gary Gensel and others, if you have $130 trillion asking you to do something, that's a pretty big number of dollars to stare down and say, no, that's not material to you. So, yeah. so, so one of the areas that I think seems to be a little bit of a sticking point uh, is the part of the proposal that says that companies need to report their scope three emissions, that's their supply chain uh, uh, emissions, uh, the emissions that are in their supply chain, uh, or uh, if those are material, to use that word again, or if the company has already included or made some commitments to include scope three in its in its targets, uh, that you know, and of course, scope three is where uh, overwhelmingly 80, 85, 90 percent of most companies' emissions lie. Uh, how how is that going to work, and and how hard is that going to be? Yeah, well, you touched on on one of the two main key pushback points I think we'll see and have already seen. And starting with that first one, the, the fear of liability. Uh, and I'm pulling this quote directly from the SEC's own press release from, I think it was Monday this week. The proposed rule would provide a safe harbor for liability from scope three emissions disclosure and an exemption from the scope three emissions disclosure requirement for smaller reporting companies. So this isn't going to affect everybody equally. Uh, I don't know the the page 312 detailed footnote um, explanation for the safe harbor, but it's definitely something that the SEC is considering. They, they made this decision based on comments that they received, of which 75%, I think, were in favor of this ruling, but it was super active uh, comment period. And so they're not, they're not working without knowing the 
detailed difficulties of those folks doing this job who know how hard it is to capture and and calculate and make sense of scope three emissions data. So that is being factored in. So so I think those banging the drum saying liability is the biggest concern. It's a little bit of a, a red herring of sorts or or potentially getting that that phrase wrong. But I think it's a bit of a distraction potentially. Uh, and the second level of pushback is on the cost side, particularly for issuers that are going through this process. Uh, and yes, listeners to this podcast will know the chase for scope three emissions data or emissions data tracking period within companies is a bit of an exercise, but there are ample software startups popping up, making it much easier to collect, share, make sense of this data. Of course, Christina Wyatt now works at one of those, Persephone. So the cost side of the equation is also quickly getting resolved. So those are kind of the two key sticking points that I think are becoming quickly less sticky. So you mentioned the, 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 what the pushback is, but where is it coming from? Who's against this? Yeah, well, if you want a uh, kind of a crass proxy for who might be pushing back, listen to Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, hearing uh, processes right now. You, you'll probably hear some of the similar characters who are, yeah, well, let me break it down into two threads, I guess. One side would be the ideological opposition. Uh, and we're all familiar with with what those two sides, if you can pit it like that, is one who believes that climate change's effects on humanity have already arrived and are not only compromising private enterprises' ability to function, but also the continued dignified life of many humans on Earth is is being tested. And those who think that that's a bit of a ruse and you know the climate just changes every couple thousand years and little ice ages happen and big ice ages happen and we're going to be fine and business should go on as usual, that's a harder problem uh, to address, maybe call it a wicked one. But the others that are pushing back are doing it pretty practically, which is there is still money to be made by finding stuff in the ground that you can pull out and burn and create motion and energy. And that's still true. So people are going to still try to make that possible. And this disclosure requirement obviously affects different companies and industries very differently. It's maybe evident when you go through the comment Uh, section for this uh, ruling from last year to see what industries and what sectors are very excited about this and can see it as a maybe even just a positive for their own business models. Some business models are inevitably going to be kind of dinged by this in a way that um, understandably they would want to push back, Uh, maybe not ethically understandably, but in terms of dollars and cents, understandably. So really quickly, Grant, uh, what happens next? What happens next? We go back to the comment period. So uh, from my Wyatt conversation, I would say they take these com- comments very seriously. I would have thought that anyways, but she kind of gave me some anecdotes that made me realize just how seriously they take the input from the community. So if you're one of those folks listening and you have the time, get back into those comments and let them know what you're thinking and get, give them feedback because we will have uh, the comment period open for 30 days after the publication in the federal registrar. And then I think it's 60 days after the date of the if- issuance and publication on their site um, or whichever period is longer. So we're back to feedback and uh, definitely a strong call from Christina Wyatt to keep the feedback up because that is how they make the most informed and thoughtful decision for us. Well, I recommend that Q&A piece that we published this week, and you can check out the proposal itself. Uh, it's all over the web, but check it out if you want it, sec.gov. Grant Harrison is our resident ESG guru and chair of our annual Greenfin Conference coming up in June. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Joel. Great to talk. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned. 
While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every single week. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Get us up, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time.